This episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you by Lloyds Bank. With their Club Lloyds current account, you can now get 12 months of Disney Plus as your lifestyle benefit. To know me is to know that I love watching things on TV, so I am so excited to tell you about this. You might think that Disney Plus is just for Disney films. And yes, it's great for all of them. We must have watched Disney's Frozen at least 100 times by now. But it's so much more than that. With Disney Plus, there is endless entertainment with exclusive originals, brand new series, blockbuster movies. And it's just one of the great benefits that you can now get with a Club Lloyds account. I highly recommend watching The Bear if you haven't seen it yet. It's all about a talented chef who's presented with the challenge of overhauling his family sandwich shop. Season two is coming soon and I can't wait. Lloyds Bank are taking care of not only your banking needs, but entertainment too. Visit lloydsbank.com forward slash Club Lloyds to find out more. £3 monthly fee is charged to maintain the Club Lloyds account, but waived each month that you pay in £2,000 or more. UK residents, 18 and over, Disney Plus subscription required. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you very much to Lloyds Bank. Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a brilliant podcast that I thought you might enjoy. It's called Therapy Works. It's hosted by best-selling author and psychotherapist Julia Samuel. And each week, Julia invites us into her therapy room where she speaks to either a celebrity, but also often an unknown guest about a particular challenge that they're facing. So often, I think the focus is on celebrities, but ordinary people's stories are just as valuable, which is something that I really believe with Desert Island Dishes too. They tackle difficult topics, but it's all in a lovely, lighthearted and uplifting way, often with humour. The episode with Rosie Jones was incredibly inspiring and definitely worth checking out. And I find the conversations that Julia has at the end with her two psychotherapist daughters so interesting where they reflect on her therapy session and they share their own insights and it's just fascinating. Search Therapy Works now wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. A few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of meeting Ravinda for the first time. We recorded this at her amazing restaurant, Jaconi, in Marlebone, where she treated me to honestly the most delicious lunch I've had in such a long time. I genuinely couldn't recommend it more highly. It's the only independent carbon neutral restaurant in the UK, which is obviously an amazing achievement, but it's also just so incredibly delicious. And you must all go if you haven't yet been. We recorded this in the restaurant just as they were getting ready to start a busy lunch service. So there is a little bit of background noise, the friendly hustle and bustle of the staff getting everything ready. So I do hope you don't mind that. And if anything, I'm hoping it will transport you to the restaurant itself. We nibbled on warm madeleines fresh from the oven and sipped tea as we recorded this. And honestly, it was heavenly. 
I love Ravinda's writing, which I tell her constantly throughout this. <laughs> so I'm very sorry for the fangirling, but I just love her work and her way with words. And I was very excited to meet her. So I hope you can forgive me. She's got a fascinating story of how she got to where she is today. And she's just the kind of person who makes things happen for herself, which I really admire and I aspire to be more like. There are also tears in this one where Ravinda had us all in floods of tears. And I'm not sure how much of that you'll hear in the final edit, but gosh, it really was quite emotional. I love talking to Ravinda and I really hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you in partnership with Lloyds Bank. My guest today is Ravinda Bogle. Kenyan born but raised in the UK by Indian parents, Ravinda is one of the UK's most successful food writers, restaurateurs and chefs. Calling her food and menus proudly inauthentic, Ravinda's work in food spans flavours and culinary traditions from the Asia, Middle East, East Africa and Britain, celebrating the idea of immigrant cuisine. She opened her first restaurant, Jaconi, in Marlebone in 2016, and it quickly became a roaring success, collecting culinary accolades such as being placed in the Michelin Guide within its first year, as well as collecting regular clients with whom Ravinda and her team get to know well, giving the restaurant a real neighbourhood feel. Ravinda's latest book comes from a lockdown idea where she and her husband began making meals for frontline workers in London, named Comfort and Joy. And this book with the same name is a glorious collection of vegetarian vegan recipes that celebrate eating in a vegetable forward way that's easy and accessible to all. Welcome, Ravinda. Oh, it's so lovely to be speaking to you. Thank you for that intro. You know, it's such a pleasure to have you on Desert Island Dishes. And I don't want to embarrass you, but I do have to tell you that you are one of my very favourite food writers. Aww. The way you write about food is just so incredibly beautiful. And it seems almost unfair that you could be such a talented writer and also <laughs> chef. And this is an impossible question because the two are intrinsically linked. But if you had to choose between your writing and your cooking, which would you choose? Oh, God. It's a really, really difficult one. But in a way, I still think I trained as a journalist. So I still think of myself as a writer first. Okay. Um, and I love cooking and I love food. I love to eat more than anything. But I think there is something about the quiet luxury of being alone with your laptop and writing that you just can't beat. Yeah, so I'd say writing has become the thing that I really love to do, particularly after the first couple of years of opening Jaconi where I just couldn't write. I was here all the time. I was head chefing at that time, you know, and it was a seven-day operation back then. So it feels very lovely for me to have carved out time to write again. Yeah, that's interesting what you say, because I think the saying goes that to be a great chef or cook, you have to be a great eater. Do you think that is true? Completely. I just think um, cooking and eating both are such, it's such a sensual pleasure. And I think you have to be quite a sensuous person and really appreciate the sensual life mm. uh, to be able to cook. You know, you can't, I mean, it's like asking someone to cook something that they've never eaten how do you connect with that you need you need to have feeling and emotion and something tangible behind what you're cooking yeah see I told you Ravinda your way with words so <laughs> there's so much to talk about but we're going to dive straight into the first desert island dish and that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood well it would be ice cream so I 
have a really fond memory of my grandfather who was like the exemplary man my first love really he was just such a kind warm everything you'd want a grandfather to be like a you know storybook grandfather and on sundays he would take me to a place called uh, snow cream which is um this sort of temple to 1950s americana kitsch in nairobi and we would get into his vw um we would drive through town get there and then you'd enter this kind of air conditioned like cool terrazzo tiled room um mirrored walls kind of quite baroque in a way and then you would sit at the counter on these stools that you could spin around on and i would spin and spin until an adult came and told me off and told me to stop spinning <laughs> i'm such a creature of habit and i don't think that has changed i would always have the same thing and it was a chocolate dipped cone mm-hmm. with like nuts sprinkled on it and it just for me it reminds me of really wholesome happy times um of being a kid of being with this wonderful man who was a diabetic and wasn't supposed to be eating ice cream and it was like our <laughs> secret sunday treat and he'd always be like don't tell your grandmother <laughs> and um it was just yeah just nostalgic joy filled and actually just recently um just before the pandemic i went to nairobi again with my husband and i said i want to go you know to snow queen still there <gasps> and uh we took a pilgrimage and it's still there nothing has changed but it's just looking a little bit older and wearier like i am i guess not <laughs> at all but but that's so interesting cuz how did it feel going back oh my heart just ached it just ached for my grandfather and it, it's weird because things didn't taste as wonderful as they once did mm. like i had the chocolate dip cone again i made my um husband order a peach melba so i could t- taste some of his but um yeah there was just something missing and i guess it was my grandfather yeah well of your grandfather you've said that whilst your mother taught you to cook it really was your grandfather who caused you to fall in love with food you describe him as being the kind of guy who ate with belt loosening brow mopping joy and fervor which just going back to your way with words is just the best description You said that he loved sharing food and that was really his greatest joy in life and part of that was him being a Sikh and something that I didn't know until I read this that one of the tenets of Sikhism is community service yeah. and he really showed you that the easiest way to do community service is to feed people and I feel like that has been instrumental in the course that your life has taken completely you know I mean as much as it was my mother who taught me to cook It wasn't the happiest experience because I remember being about 5 and being kind of hoiked off my tricycle and dragged into the kitchen. <laughs> and you know, we lived in an extended family home, so there was always anywhere between 14 and 30 people for lunch or dinner. So it was like essential that everyone kind of pitched in. But um it was just the women and the girls and I remember even at 5 being like this feminist and feeling knowing that there was something wrong with the fact that the boys were all outside playing and the girls were all inside working and I kind of internally rebelled against this but it was my grandfather who just had this love of food and of course growing up in Kenya which is like completely be- bewitching the soil is so alluvial so benevolent it just gives and gives and i think when you 
taste a tomato that's come out of that volcanic soil, you can't help but fall in love with food. And I think that was the draw for my grandfather. He came from India. He um, left India. He was a rebel. His story is like uh, incredible. Uh, ran away from home, got on a boat in Bombay that was sailing to Kenya, voyage in the dark, went with his brother 26 days later, these were migrant boats. They weren't luxury cruise ships. Um, you know, bodies being thrown off, you know, people starving. The boat ends up back in India uh, because something has gone wrong. And my grandfather's brother was like, I'll never make that journey again. But here's my grandfather, this pioneer wow. who did it again a month later, set sail again and comes to Kenya. There are like all these difficulties, isolation, you know, missing family, language barriers. Kenya then was still a British colony, so racial divides, really tough. Yet in amongst all of that, he still managed to find time to fall so deeply in love with this earth because this soil, he just never got over how benevolent it was. You know, he had come from such harsh times, having so little. And the gratitude that he found in his shamba, the allotment, was just beautiful to witness. I remember him saying Vaheguru, which means wonderful God, several times a day, thanking Providence. And he saw the miracle in soil and what it gave us. And I think partly why I wrote Comfort and Joy was it's a love letter to him because it's about the miracle, the abundance of the vegetable world. His philosophy was like, we look for miracles and that is very rare to mm. find someone with that attitude to life. And then he, whatever he grew, he shared. That was the beauty. It was the sharing of food that really, and it was the conversations around the dinner table, the love, mm. um, the community around the dinner table that really inspired me. And yes, I do remember him saying, we must all do seva, seva, which is community service. And the easiest way you can be helpful is just to feed people. I think once you start thinking like that your life does just become so much more joy-filled because as you say you see miracles in the everyday it's it's what people say about children when you witness them seeing something for the first time and even really small things like flowers on the bushes or whatever it might be yeah you realize that there are so many things we do just completely take for granted and stop seeing even because they're completely. so everyday. And for someone who had the deep wounds and scars of having come from a place where he had very little, to see Kenya through his eyes, mm. to see nature through his eyes, was just a beautiful thing. Like he really appreciated it on another level. Yeah. Um, in a way, only someone who has been through difficult times can. Yeah. Sounds amazing. We're going to pause there and talk about the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. So I think like many people, the first foray into the kitchen is often through baking. Yeah. And uh, my mother used to make these, they're called naan kathais. And they are little biscuits, like almost shortbread biscuits laced with cardamom. And they come from Iran, but they're very popular in India as well. And they are like tiny little cookies. And she would roll them out and they would be on a baking sheet or whatever. And then I would have to go around with the tip of a knife and put a little cross in the middle with the tip of a knife and then take a matchstick, 
dip it in red food dye and then put a little dot on each one. And it always reminded me of a bindi caught up in a frown. Um, <laughs> and I found this so beautiful. And the cook's treat was getting them as soon as they had come out of the oven. So they're not quite set. You know, that, that kind of uh, conducive heat hasn't quite cooked them yet. And sort of they would just crumble. They were so short and then kind of gathering up the crumbs with the pads of your fingers and licking them up is such joy. So good. When you were seven, you and your family moved to the UK, which you describe as a rude awakening. You say you'd come from this colossal backdrop of ever blue sky that was giant and never ending to a tiny flat above a shop. It was November, it was cold, and you didn't have central heating or a washing machine. That must have been really, really tough. Tell us what, what that was like. It was really hard. The thing is that my parents never told us that we were coming here for good. Oh. And I had come to England before, but it had always been like holidays, you know, seeing English cousins or going to Fortnum and Mason or <laughs> carousel of like Hamleys in Fortnum and Mason. <laughs> and I thought that was what England was. And then the shock of coming here and being like, we're not going back. And then my father had come a year before us and he hadn't really thought about what was child friendly. He just like got this like little, sh you know, flat above a shop. There was no central heating, like you said, there was no washing machine. There were barely carpets, there were no curtains. Everything was strung together. It was really, really difficult. And I'd come from, you know, living quite a privileged life back in Kenya. And there's a story that I wrote about in the Jikoni cookbook, and it was it's called The Guava Tree, and it's this, this weird story about when I came to this country first, I was sick all the time. I think it was the cold. I just wasn't used to it. And so every few weeks I'd get a fever and I'd be in bed and I was just a really sickly child. And one time I just wasn't getting well and this fever had gone on for like weeks and the doctor had come and seen me and like I seemed to be having a nightmare and when she came into my room I had a fever but I was delirious and I kept asking for guavas and she was like this is England there are no guavas and I was convinced that there were guavas in the house because when you have a guava in the house every single room smells of guava it's such a beautiful fragrance and we had a guava tree right outside our house in Kenya so then a couple of days later my father turned up with this box of like six unripe, you know, completely out of season um, guavas packed in sawdust. And they gave them to me. And then my mother was like, they're not ripe yet. And she set them on the windowsill to ripen. And I just patiently waiting for them to ripen. And the day that I ate one was the day that I got well. And I think what I'd been <gasps> suffering from was homesickness. Oh and my it was goodness. like food that cured it, this, this aching for something of home that cured my homesickness. That's amazing. Yeah. So how long had you been here when you realised this was now home and it wasn't Very just a quickly. visit? Very quickly. I mean, the reality sunk in pretty quickly and going to school, not looking like anybody else, not speaking like anybody else. My English was different. My accent was different. Feeling the cultural shock of the bad weather, the the kind of um, customs that I couldn't get my head around, you know, and the lack of friends. And also, I think uh, children are very empathetic by nature. And I knew my parents were having a really tough time. And 
So you don't discuss your issues with them because you don't want to weigh them down with your worries. So you, mm. I, I really internalized. I was a very lonely child. I internalized everything I was feeling, carried the weight of the world on my shoulders and worried about my parents and what they were going through. And actually it was the library that then mm. became my savior. And I just don't think I would have survived without the public library. I think, you know, you could lose yourself. You could... You could forget your pain and transport yourself to other places through books. Yeah. And I think that's, they were my saving grace. Yeah, I read that it was both the library and also the kitchen that became your jewel refuge. It sounds like from that you discovered both food and reading at a similar time, which must have been really pivotal. And I think lucky to discover those two things in tandem, because they're both so crucial in finding out who you are and what you think about the world. Completely. And I think the kitchen is almost like a portal that connects you to home, you know, and also there's a mindfulness to the kitchen. The kind of sort of very quiet luxury of a kitchen, I think, is is a really, um, it's a tonic, you know, when life is so chaotic and unexpected and all these, you're having to adapt to all these things. And then suddenly to be in a kitchen and the interplay that happens between you and the ingredient and who you're cooking from and the intention that you're putting into it is a, is a, like a prayer. You know, it's a very quiet, lovely experience to have. And I know people sometimes think of the kitchen as being quite chaotic, but for me, it was quite the opposite. It was this grounding yeah connecting to the flavors of home and also settling in with what was new and around me so new ingredients new flavors and reconciling there was a reconciliation of the old and what I was pining for and the new and the, the sort of like wonder of my new landscape and the reconciliation of those two things and mm. creating almost a new cuisine that comes out of that so let's move on to the third desert island dish and that's the best dish you've ever eaten the one dish I find myself sort of fantasizing about and, you know, having living in my brain rent free, as they say, as the kids say these days, um, is a tiramisu. And it's a specific tiramisu um, that I ate in a place called Trattoria Dardano um, by a chef called Paolo Castelli. And he is wonderful. It's in a place called Cortona, which is on the sort of Tuscan-Umbrian borders. And I remember going there for the first time. And the hospitality is just knockout. It's how they make you feel. Like you're a guest, like you're, it's their honor to be looking after you. And if you can't decide between this and that, they give you both. They're just so generous. And it's a mother and, and his son uh, who run it local, seasonal, without being kind of snooty or snobbish about it. It is just the way of life for them. But it was the tiramisu and it is exactly what I think a tiramisu should be. Like so relaxed and pure in a massive, gigantic bowl. Um, no shape or form. Like as soon as it's spooned out, it just kind of collapses. And it's so light and airy and bubbly and just the right amount of coffee and booze. And I went to the restaurant in one week, three times. I was there just for a week. And every single time I was like the tiramisu. And on my last visit, he just bought out the entire bowl <laughs> and set it on the table in front of me and was like, knock yourself out. <gasps> I mean, that's the dream. It was just like this bowl of joy, you know. It was so simple. Like the best foods, I think, 
are just simple things. Yeah, it's just a magical dish. Like I could, it could be my death row dish. That's gorgeous. So you started your career as a beauty journalist working for Look and Grazia. You always knew that you wanted to be a writer. Tell us how you made the huge leap from beauty to food. How did that happen? God, it's a thing of legend now. So... I was the girl who worked on fashion magazines that was like everybody's worst nightmare because I was a (laughs) diet disaster. So I would spend most of my time cooking and bringing in like cakes and biscuits and throwing these like picnics where we'd just like kind of go to the local park and like have these like extraordinary work lunches with, you know, the team I worked with. And a really dear friend of mine, Heather Wiley, who was then a fashion stylist, one day called me up out of the blue and said, I've just seen an advert for a cookery competition and I just have this instinct that if you enter, you're going to win. And she was weirdly psychic, like she had this like cosmic energy. And so I thought, well, what have I got to lose? And... uh, I entered this cookery competition. It was part of the F word, Gordon Ramsay, Angela Hartnett was on the panel. And like 9,000 women entered. And I kind of went in so nonchalantly. It went down to 50 women and I was one of the 50. And I thought, I don't even have a hope in hell of winning. And then I won. And it was like this really surreal moment in my life where I was really surprised, but I was sort of not. In a weird kind of way, I think I had been manifesting this moment because I'd spent so much of my subconscious time thinking about food, thinking about writing about food. I just didn't come from a family where where women did things like that. I didn't know anyone who'd ever done anything like that. You know, my parameters were set very early on. You will cook and you will clean and you will do that for your husband and your children. And that is as far as it goes in my family. And so this idea of cooking on a public platform was never like something that I was taught to aspire to. And I remember having taken the day off to do this competition. So I went to my editor and said, oh, you know that thingy I took the day off for? Well, I I won. And she was like, oh, my God, we're going to lose you. And I was like, don't be ridiculous. And then the day the show aired, I started randomly getting calls from agents saying, you may have a career in this. And so off I went and I saw seven or eight agents and I was so unimpressed in a way because I was a journalist. I was skeptical about everything and I was, I'm a very cautious person by nature. I'm not spontaneous in that way. And then I met the last agent and she was the only one who was sort of like, "Mm, I'm not sure about you. And it was a woman called Jackie Drew at (laughs) Curtis Brown. And I said to her, well, you know, I'm not really that bothered about television. I'm, I'm a writer and I've been writing this book. And she said, oh, well, I must introduce you to this girl. And she took me in to meet Felicity Blunt, who is now my agent. And I was Felicity's first client. Wow. And I was her first book deal. And she just connected to the manuscript and she loved it. And within three months of that, I had a book deal. And then I started doing television. And it was when I was presenting a show. It was a six-part series on Channel 4. My co-host happened to be the one and only Jay Rayner, mouth on legs. <laughs> and he would eat what I would cook. And he just, I'd never had a mentor. And he sort of mentored me and took me under his wing. And he said, I've never tasted these flavors together. This combination, it's so kind of idiosyncratic. And have you thought about going and working in kitchens? You should really go and like learn the trade of restaurants. 
And had you not thought about it I up until never, then? I never, ever thought. I mean, if you told me back then you'd have a restaurant in central London and I would have laughed. Like, it was so unbelievable to me. Unbelievable, but was it ever... A desire, no. no not a, even not a desire. Not a desire That's at so all. so interesting. And, uh, you know, I wanted to write about food, but I just, I didn't want to run a restaurant. I yeah. didn't know the first thing about <laughs> running restaurants. And yeah, so I did. I went and started working in other people's restaurants and doing stages. And then it was the era of the pop-up. And Anna Hansen asked me to take over one of her evenings that she was doing this sort of series of pop-ups. And I cooked for 95 people that night, having only ever done dinner parties at home. And it was like being high, like service was like a drug. And I just couldn't get enough. It was like the kind of adrenaline that you finish a service and people are coming up to the pass and telling you that they've enjoyed their food and you're seeing the pleasure on people's faces, that instant gratification. Did that feel like a light bulb moment? Yeah, I mean, the dopamine that you Mm. get coming off a service like that was just, it was a light bulb moment. But my father, who I had a very strange relationship with, a very difficult relationship, he was a patriarch and he really didn't really, we have four daughters and for him, it was really about a son. You know, he just thought of of girls as burdens. He didn't really encourage us to study. It was very much like, you'll get to 16, you'll do a secretarial course, and then I'm going to marry you off. And that's kind of what happened with my three sisters. And then it came to me, and I, I knew it wasn't for me. And I remember having these massive fights with him and, like, slammed doors and, like, you know, not speaking to him for weeks because he'd want to introduce me to this boy and that boy. And I, I was just like, I'm not having any of it. And it was only much later on when he got sick, he had cancer. And we really bonded in those years because I was looking after him. And I had this burgeoning career with a book and doing television. And suddenly he understood what I was doing. It was tangible for him. Mm. Sort of his immigrant ethic was very much bricks and mortar. So he was like, okay, you have this skill. You can cook. It's being appreciated by the general public. Now you should open a restaurant. And his idea was to like rent me a property that he had on West Street in Erith like nightmare and (laughs) why don't you just open a little cafe and he just kept telling me to do this and then on the night that I did my very first pop-up my father had become very ill and Mm. he was very confused so I leading up to that pop-up he uh, had an illness where his brain was basically being poisoned Mm. he had um, uh, encephalopathy of the liver which kind of makes you behave like you have dementia or something So he would call me sometimes four times a day and be like, oh, how was your how was your pop up? How did it go? And I'd be like, Dad, it's not for another two weeks, not realizing that he was sick, just thinking he was being forgetful. And on the night that I did that first pop up, I was like so excited. And I was like, I can't wait to tell him that he was probably right. And this is probably where my destiny is heading. And at about three o'clock in the morning that night, I the telephone rings and it was my mother saying you need to get to the hospital your father is ill and eight weeks after that he was dead and I never got to share that with him okay I'm gonna take a moment I always say I won't cry and then I do but I really feel that it was his spirit and belief in that I could that has pushed me on 
really kindly Mark Hicks had asked me to do a pop-up at Selfridges and I had to postpone it because my father had died. And then nine months later, we picked up the conversation again and Mark said to me, why don't you do something in like memory of your dad? Why don't you do all your dad's favorite dishes? And I remember being in a kitchen with like a hundred quails with feathers and guts still in them turning up and thinking, how the hell am I going to do this? And I just genuinely feel that there was some force from above, like magical force just pushing me on. And I felt like all the pop-ups and and supper clubs and everything that I was doing then, I felt like I was on a conveyor belt that I couldn't get off and I was not in control of my destiny. And I really feel that my father's wish for me has been fulfilled in this bricks and mortar here in Marylebone. And I just think that had he been alive, he would have drunk me out of my bloody whiskey. He would have been here. (laughs) (laughs) He would have been so proud. Because he was such a social person. He was this larger than life character who just loved a party. Like Mm. his nickname was Casanova. and He loved women (laughs) in parties and and socializing. So the restaurant would have just been a dream for him. Yeah, he would have been so proud. I think it's so interesting to think about relationships with parents like that, because so often there is this tug between what they want for you and what you want for yourself but ultimately all they ever want is for you to be happy and in him trying to set you up and get you married off he was trying to secure for you a future that he thought would have made you happy yeah but obviously as time went on he realized what you were actually capable of and yeah and that you know but he had this sort of severe um aversion to XX chromosomes and I remember him being quite sort of uh, put downy in the way he would talk about women and his daughters and I remember him saying things like oh educating your daughters is like planting seeds in your neighbor's garden you're never going to get a return on it things like that that really kind of gave me a really uh, poor sense of self-esteem like it really affected me growing up when he was sick I think you know when we see our mortality Mm. things about life become clear about what's important and I was so kind of close to him in those couple of last couple of years and I remember one moment where he sort of said to me saying you haven't been my daughter you've been my son and it was his way of saying that he was very proud of me and it was like a kind of backhanded compliment (laughs) I guess but um it was a really beautiful thing to Mm. be able to unfurl you know love that had always been sort of strange and mute um from this person who was seeing his own mortality Mm. and I'm very grateful for that but the blessing was that I had that time with him I can definitely see that's a backhanded compliment but from a man like that that's actually the greatest compliment he could have given you in the worst segue in the history of desert island dishes. We're going to pause there and talk about the fourth desert island dish. Ravinda, what is your favourite sandwich? I love a sandwich. I mean, I've written a lot about bread, actually, in Comfort and Joy. So there's this whole chapter about um, my aversion to bread, which started in my sort of when I was about 19 or something. So I was the first girl in my family to be allowed to go to university, which I had to fight tooth and nail for. And I went kind of nuts. And um, (laughs) I sometimes made decisions which were very poor. And one of them was this sort of like moment of vanity where I decided that I wanted to be a model and I'd been approached by an agency. 
and I was on a shoot for a, an Indian wedding magazine and I heard the photographer comment to the makeup artist that I was photographically fat. <gasps> and this was the era of the Atkins diet. And I was, you know, I remember at that age, I was about seven stones and like, you know, five foot six, like tiny. Overnight, the you know, bread and carbs basically became the enemy. And for me, bread had always been this sort of like the circular daydream of life. I ate burratas and pizzas and bagels without even giving it a second thought. And then suddenly my every cell in my body rejected this. And yet I really um, craved bread and all these things. And this went on for many years until I started... Um, studying journalism and I was sent off on an assignment where I ended up in this house uh, with a lot of refugee women and they were from all over the place you know in the world everywhere in the world they'd come from such difficult circumstances and they were all cooking together and there were stews and things bubbling away and of course I was feeling this like cold hunger inside myself and this woman gave me like she said the most useful thing to me I think anyone has ever said. And she said, in my country, we have the same word for life as we do for bread, because bread is life. And what is life without bread? <sighs> and at that point, I just remember filling up my plate with bread and I've never stopped eating bread and enjoying bread. And, um, and so I love bread and I love sandwiches and I'm obsessed with sandwiches. And it's so difficult to tell you my favorite because I think every sandwich that's made with love is a good sandwich. <laughs> but I have a particular nostalgia for the sandwiches of my childhood. Um, this is back in Kenya. We would cook on a jiko, which is the word jikoni comes from jiko. Jikoni means kitchen, jiko means stove. And it's normally a coal burning outdoor stove. And we would have what was like a breville, but it was, it was one of those old fashioned ones that was not electric. So it was this kind of contraption into which you laid your bread, put your filling in, sandwiched your bread and then closed it. So it embossed the design into the bread and you would hold it over the coals and toast it like that. So it was naturally smoky tasting anyway. And my mom would make these beautiful sandwiches that were made from leftover cauliflower curry oh, with wow. mixed with cheese, like melty cheese. And the cauliflower curry had turmeric in it and she would brush the bread with ghee rather than butter, which is just like the sweetest butter ever. And the turmeric would kind of seep out and stain the white bread. And like it was like someone touched, like the Midas touch. It would just go golden and crisp and smoky because of the coal. And they are just the best sandwiches ever. And there's a recipe for them in... Jikoni, where I say, you know, this was always a way of using leftover cauliflower curry. And now I make the cauliflower curry in order to make the sandwiches <laughs> because they're the best thing yes. that you can do with it. Oh, so, my yeah. goodness. That sounds incredible. So during your time working in kitchens and doing pop-ups, Faye Mashler had become a fan of yours. She was, of course, the Evening Standard food critic for 48 years. And eventually... She came up to you and said, when are you going to stop being such a coward and find a space of your own? And you've described it as being a very Virginia Woolf, room of one's own type moment. Do you think if she hadn't have said that, 
you would have ever taken the leap and, and done it? I don't think so. I think it took another woman mm. to kind of, you know, shake me in a way. I had such imposter syndrome. I was just a cook, you know, and I I think it was the hang up as well of coming from a family where women were expected to just join, join this cult of domesticity where they cooked and they cleaned and it was thankless work. And I just hadn't gotten my head around the fact that I could do this for real. And it took someone like Faye, you know, with all her kind of greatness to sort of challenge me in a way. And then I just thought, you know, actually just to have one place where I can build my kitchen and, and you know, and all I wanted was a kitchen and a few chairs and tables in Marylebone. But, <laughs> um, but then, yeah, I set about the task of finding a site and it took two years to find this. And uh, here we are. But I don't think I would have done it without Faye's encouragement. Yeah. It was worth the wait. But it's so funny to think that Sometimes it does take someone else seeing something within us to actually believe it for yourself. And it's amazing that she was that person. Let's talk about the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish you eat the most often. Well, I think there are two things that rotate on my men, you know, my repertoire at home, especially in the first few years when, um, you know, I barely was home before midnight to eat. Um, it was either dal, you know, which I have a, I love a pressure cooker and I love, you know, my lentils being in a pressure cooker and dal. There are so many manifestations. Mother Jaffrey called it LSD, life-saving dal. And it's true. It's so good for you. So much protein. Um, there are several ways to make it, several different things you can do with it. Um, there's a whole chapter in my new book dedicated to dal, um, and it's just so comforting. It's easy to digest and um, delicious. So dal, and I love having um, toasted cheese sandwiches dipped in dal. That's one thing I love eating. And then the other thing I'm obsessed with is pasta. And for me, it's um, aglio, olio, you know, pepperoncino and uh, lemon zest really, really slowly confit in lots of olive oil and butter and then you know, my favorite pasta with some of the pasta water sort of tossed through that and then lots and lots of Parmesan cheese and some herbs. And that is heaven for me. Those are two amazing dishes. I love the sound of a cheese toasty with dal. I think I'm going to have to try that this weekend. That sounds incredible. So with Giacconi, within a year of opening, you were in the Michelin Guide you ranked number 19 by Square Meal in London's top 100 restaurants in 2022 and in Time Out's top 100 in 2023. So to say it's a huge success is an understatement. Was opening the restaurant everything you thought it would be? Just before I opened the restaurant, a lot of chefs or people in the industry were like, don't open a restaurant. Because oh, really? it's so hard. And everyone kept saying to me, look, it's really hard. Your life is going to change. And and I, until you're doing it, you can never prepare yourself. And I think the first year, I still have PTSD from the first year of opening. I mean, doing pop-ups to then having a place of your own and the pressure that that comes with, I don't think I can be, it can't be, you know, overstated how difficult that is. And it was such a tricky time in my life and so all-consuming in a way that 
I just didn't sleep, I don't think, for the first. And I got so ill, like six months in, I hadn't had a single day off. I just had to be here all of the time. So it was just the steepest, steepest learning curve. And I made so many mistakes at the beginning. But I think I would not change any of that because of what we have now. And what we have now is this idol. Like, I feel like it is... I think for me, Jaconi was a subconscious attempt to create a space where people like me could feel that they belonged. People that had whose experience as an immigrant had always been cauterized. You know, you're told, oh, this is who you are. You're the brown Indian girl, so you must go in the Indian box and you must do Indian food and stay in your lane. And actually, I'm much more than that. I'm East African, Indian, I'm British. And my food and how I cook and how I give hospitality is an expression of all of that. And nothing gives me more joy when we have the most international people coming to you know, our restaurant, whether it's a Palestinian, Egyptian, French, and everybody says, oh my God, this tastes some, something my grandmother used to cook or my auntie used to cook. And the fact that everyone can taste a part of their home in my food is what gives me mm. real joy. So much of your story I feel, comes down to your spirit and tenacity. And there's a very famous podcast in America called How I Built This. And the question that he asks every guest is how much of your success do you attribute to yourself and hard work and skill? And how much do you attribute to timing and luck or whatever you might call that? And I wondered, how would you answer that question? I think as women, we're very guilty of saying, God, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. Well, I'm fed up of saying mm. that. I've said that for many years. I'm not lucky. I'm really, really hardworking. And I have had to prove myself, particularly coming off what was basically a reality TV cooking show, to have to earn your stripes amongst kitchens which are dominated by men. And I've always been very bloody minded. I think I've had to be to survive in my family where maybe that's a trait I actually get from my grandfather, from my father, these pioneers. You know, I think I was a rebel just like my grandfather. Um, and I've always known what I want. And I have never sat on my laurels I just I'm ambitious and I keep going until until I'm there and for me now it's about the journey of taking my team with me and opening myself up to opportunities so that my team can grow with me yeah because even with the site at Jaconi I read that there were 40 people on the wait list before you yeah and you you persuaded them to give it to you and like, literally you don't give up I had been, I went to see the Portman Estate two years before this site was even ready to be marketed and they literally laughed me out of their offices. They were like, you have no reputation, you have no operational experience, you have no money and we have already 40 interested parties. There isn't a chance that we'll give this to you. I mean, it was like really awful. And and yet, you know, I had waited for a restaurant in Marylebone and I was not going to let this skip by. And I actually snuck in on somebody else's viewing the first time. Oh, wow. And I just said to them, listen, you're going to have to listen to my pitch. It's not fair. You don't have another woman on your, on your um, estate. And my idea for a restaurant has not been done. I want to celebrate maternal food and maternal voices. And you... you 
won't regret it. Like if you give me a chance. And I think I ended up pitching to them three times. Wow. And then on the 23rd of December, like right before Christmas in 2015, they called me up and they said, you haven't got the biggest pockets, but you've got the biggest mouth and we're going to give you the site. <laughs> and then I had to sit on that till like April, you know, when we were had the keys and everything all the paperwork had been signed and then I was just like oh my god and then by end of September we were open it's kind of crazy that's amazing god that's given me goosebumps we're on to the sixth desert island dish what's your go-to dinner party dish I don't have a specific one but I always try and cook with what's seasonal and I let the ingredients talk to me and inspire me but I love like big platters of things that people can really dig into and share and I'm so lucky because I have a wonderful neighbor in Patricia Mickelson at La Fromagerie who I love and respect so much and that shop is like a treasure because what she doesn't know about provenance and ingredients is not worth knowing and I go there often just to be inspired. I remember just one one day turning up and there was like radicchio and muscat grapes and pomegranates and figs and it was like, and blackberries. And it was like all these flavors of like early autumn. And I just bought everything and then I pulled everything together into this delicious salad where I, I roasted the grapes with some pink peppercorns like ever so slightly so they were just bursting um balls of beautiful um burrata uh these bitter radicchio leaves the sweet figs and pomegranate seeds and it was this platter and olive oil lots of olive oil and it's just this really simple salad but it's so beautiful to look Mm. at everything just comes together in this amazing symphony and i think it makes a beautiful centerpiece for a table that sounds good gorgeous and do you tend to serve a pudding when you do a dinner party always I think my love language is puddings and I think the way to show someone you really love them is by lavishing time because puddings aren't easy and they are so fleeting they are the part of a dinner that you don't really need but you are greedy so you have to have (laughs) and to to lavish so much time of your time time is a luxury on making something that is just such a brief moment of enjoyment is, I think, to show someone how much they you love them. Mm, and so I there is that. always a pudding at my table. But I love jellies because they're so titillating and wonderful. So I, 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 I make, um, it's a pomegranate Negroni jelly. Um, And it's all the beautiful flavors of of, um, Negroni and I put bay leaf and pomegranate molasses into it. And I I switch out the the vermouth for port. The color is kind of incredible. And then I serve it with a citrus granita and sort of fresh blood orange salad. And it is so light and so beautiful and to bring it jiggling onto the table at the end is just a joy yeah oh my goodness that sounds incredible on desert island dishes we have a cookbook corner so i'd love to know what is your most treasured cookbook 
It would have to be hands down Mother Joffrey's Eastern vegetarian cooking. She's such an idol of mine. She's so clever, you know, and again, someone who has been, um, you know, people just think she does Indian food and she's so much more than that. She's so traveled, you know, she used to do like, used to take her 10 years to write a cookbook because of the research that went into it and Eastern vegetarian cooking, you know, there are dishes from Turkey and China and India and regional Indian food. And I grew up, you know, people say mother knows best. For me, it's mother knows best. (laughs) I love that. That's so good. Yeah, excellent choice. We're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? When it comes down to it, I like really simple pleasures. And I think my mother makes like this sweet and sour dal. It's like... uh, Um, split pigeon peas Mm -hmm. which she puts tamarind and mustard seeds and curry leaves and just serves it with with rice that have got fresh hot ghee over and and then she makes this kind of um, curry with just like potatoes and and sort of again tomatoes and just really really simple it's so comforting and it's a thing that I used to love her cooking for me as a child and it's a family favorite my sisters love it too I think that is kind of what I'd like to go out on this taste of home this taste of connection to my past to my people to my ancestors and because pudding is your love language are you going to have a pudding to see you on your way I'd have to have a table of puddings. There would be several. There would, of course, be ice cream. There would be um, chocolate cake made by my husband's great aunt, who is like the Mary Berry of Kenya. Oh, She's wow. like, she ran her business off of like a flip phone and a little book where she would take, and she's made like several million cakes over her lifetime. Oh, wow. She also won a baking competition. And that's how her career started when she was a young girl. She makes her cakes with margarine, which I sort of love. And they just taste really old-fashioned and they're iced in a really old-fashioned way. And they're just, they taste of simpler times Mm. and joy. So they would be one of those... There would be um, some sort of meringue thing, maybe a lemon meringue pie, a trifle because trifles are like wedding dresses, like frothy and beautiful and, you know, kind of English. And I love, you know, the English nostalgia is something as as someone who wasn't born here, I kind of live for. Um, And a tiramisu, the Trattoria Dardano tiramisu, of course, all that stuff, all the good stuff. Yeah. Another thing that I absolutely love, I love Peach Melba, so there would be a Peach Melba on this there. This sounds amazing. Ravinda, please can we make this happen? Ravinda, those were your Desert Island dishes. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for having me. So there we have it, another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you're listening, really, I think. It boosts the show in the charts and it helps others to find it, which is great because it means I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you very much to Lloyd's for sponsoring us this season and thank you very much for listening. I will see you next week. Bye.